Hey, what's up? Welcome back to Open to Truth. My name's Tony, and you are listening to part two of our episode on evolution. So if you missed part one, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to that. came out last week. The whole discussion is about two hours long, including both episodes. So um, we're going to jump in right in the middle where we cut it off last week. So if you, you might be confused, basically, if you haven't listened to last week. But if you have listened to it and you're eager for more, then uh, here you go. Here's the second half of our discussion uh, about evolution. Uh, my question was more just specifically about the Cambrian part of of what t- what's in the toolkit for evolutionary theory to explain that in particular. Not not all of the diversity right, right. ever, um, just right there. Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, this really kind of feeds into a common misconception about the way Mm. evolution works that, you know, you hear the analogy of, you know, you put a a monkey with a typewriter and what are the chances that this monkey is going to type out the complete works of Shakespeare? You know, how could, how could uh, such a random uh, process come up with the the diversity that we see? Sure. I have heard that. Yeah. Yeah. The more we know about modern genetics, the more we understand exactly what you're talking about, exactly how that could have happened. Um, to say that that evolution is just like monkeys on a typewriter is a complete misunderstanding about the very basics of evolution and how evolution works. So the first thing I would like to say just right from the beginning is that evolution does not start from scratch. So we are never starting with with a blank slate when you're talking about evolution. Uh, Natural selection can only act on what is already present. So for example, you can have mutations in specific single base pairs within a gene or Entire genes can be deleted, entire genes can be duplicated, or even expressed in a new place. And when this happens, Mm. you have a much more dramatic effect. Um, When a gene is duplicated, it may take on a new function, or it can even amplify an existing function. And so that is how, you know, we can see within... Um, this time frame of evolutionary history on Earth, some of these dramatic changes. Um, in addition to genes that code for actual traits like, you know, hair color, texture, height, those kind of things that we're familiar with, traits, the vast majority of our genes, in fact, in human beings, it's 98%. 98% of, of, the, of the DNA in humans does not code for anything. They're, they're, instead, they are control genes. They're turning on the 2% on and off. They're delaying the timing of the expression of a gene or they're speeding up the expression of the, of the gene. Um, I like this example, it's also in the book, that if you wanted to tell an orchestra that there had been a change in the program for the evening, what would you do? Would you go whisper the change to the trombone player or would you whisper the change to the conductor if you wanted the entire orchestra to know about the change in the program? Well, of course, you would tell the change to the conductor. So we have genes throughout our genomes that are the conductors. They are control genes. And so one modification, one mutation to a control gene can have a dramatic effect. It can change the whole orchestra, so to speak. And so once we began to understand the function of control genes, it became a little more clear how something like evolution from a land mammal to a fully aquatic marine whale isn't such a stretch. And since the the era of modern genetics, we are finding more and more evolution does not start from scratch. Evolution tinkers with what is already there. And evolution as a process works by just modifying, reassigning, or co-opting old genes uh, for new purposes. And throughout life on our planet, 
Uh, we are finding new takes on old body plans and parts and pieces in a more primitive um, ancestral type animal that's doing a completely different function in a uh, more modern, uh, complex animal. And mm-hmm. so uh, that is one way, you know, they're the primary way that we are looking at the diversity that we see and in, in, in under the time frame, the four billion years or so to get to the diversity yeah, that so, we have. Right. And just to put a pin on it, it's that mutating or just one example at least of a mutation in a control gene we're not talking about waiting for mutations all across this billions of sequence genome it could be this one thing one com- a really compelling example i think this is where it is in your book and in, in this discussion of why it is that humans can't make their own vitamin, vitamin c. c yeah i thought that was really interesting can you just speak to that as an example of that's a control gene issue uh, no, that is a, it's not a control gene issue. It's actually a, um, I think that's actually for a gene, probably for if, if I'm just trying to recall the, if the mechanics of that, that would allow us, you know, an enzyme in a biochemical mm-hmm. function that would allow us to, um, to produce our own vitamin C. And most mammals have that gene. We have that gene. That gene is just broken. Yes, we have it. It's broken. Yeah, we just have it. It's broken. And it's also broken in the other great apes, which are closely related to us evolutionarily. And so it's not that we don't have that gene. We just carry a mutation in that gene to produce vitamin C. And so great apes, and including the humans, have to get our vitamin C from our diet. We can no longer um, synthesize our own vitamin C. So like for me, the reason I found that compelling, I think uh, just uh, that one was high. There's a ton of examples in the book, but that one jumped out to me because, man, if I just pull myself back again for the different views I could choose, what is a better, more likely explanation for this uh, that my that other animals that I'm related to evolutionarily um, have that functioning gene for whatever it is that produces the ability for me to process my own vitamin C? That just God just in his good pleasure decided, uh, I don't want the great apes and human beings to have that, but all the other ones. Turned it off, yeah. That has to kind of be what's being said Mm-hmm. by the creationist or here's this other explanation where oh uh at some point this this mutation process uh switched it off and that's why these guys don't have it and the rest of them do I, that just that's, sounds more plausible mm-hmm. and you have to go even a step beyond that from the creationist um explanation as you just put it not only did the creator decide that humans and the great apes did not get to synthesize their own vitamin c but the creator or the designer inserted a broken gene yeah. that we yeah, didn't, yeah. Just yes. didn't get to do, right. but, but but a broken gene, incidentally broken in exactly the same way as the great apes, our closest um, genetic oh relatives. Yeah, it's damning. It's damning evidence. This um this talk about control genes is new to me. I have not heard that, and I'm wondering if it could be offered as an, a defense for one of the critiques I've heard of evolution, especially with random mutation operating sort of blindly is the just the amount of time that it would take to reach the diversity that we've reached today our sun would have burned out you know it's just, it would take way too long if it was all random but but these control genes are almost like macro changes or shortcuts almost that change a bunch of things through one mutation right am i understanding that right yeah interestingly we have identified the gene the control gene for for limbs in a snake, and we have found that that control gene has been turned off. Um, snake, Can we turn these back on? Is someone out there turning them back on somehow? That gene has been inserted into the genome of a mouse, and guess what? The mouse was born without limbs. What? So, yeah, and embryologically, snakes have little limb buds, but that gene is turned off during embryological development, and they reabsorb. And so we can take that gene that's been turned off, we can insert it, now that we know how to do that with modern genetics, into the genome of a mouse, and the mouse will not express 
the growth of limbs. So yeah, oh, wow. control yeah. genes are That's powerful. That's crazy. Yep, they're very powerful. I want to look at some other misconceptions of evolution, but I think here's a we're hitting on something really important, and that's the role of prediction and expectation in our theorizing. Mm-hmm. Can you just speak to that and like what what power is harnessed by that? Because I feel like that's something that's kind of been an undercurrent of the discussion is that evolutionary theory is able. There's something special about it being able to predict. Or that what we observe fits with what you might expect if it were true. Well, and what you've hit on there is a is a foundational aspect of any science theory. A science theory has to be able to to um, to generate testable predictions. If it doesn't generate testable predictions, it is not science. It's not a science theory. So. For example, when Neil Shubin, who was interested back in the late 1900s, the late um, 1990s, uh, early 2000s, when Neil Shubin was interested in documenting that transition from water to land, he knew where fish, the first fish appear in the fossil record. And Shubin knew where the first tetrapods or four-limbed animals appear in the fossil record. And so evolution theory led him to predict if I were to find an animal in transition between fully aquatic and fully land, I would look in this particular rock formation. And so he didn't just go traveling anywhere in the world where he could get a good airline ticket. He had to find exposed rocks of the right age, and he found Tiktaalik. Without evolution theory, he would not have been able to make that prediction. If all let us know what that is. What's Tiktaalik? What is Tiktaalik? Yeah. Uh, Tiktaalik is a. Uh, it's considered one of our premier transitionals. It was found by Dr. Neil Shubin around 2005 in the Canadian Arctic. Um, Tiktaalik was a fish. It had gills. It had scales, but it also had the flat head of a crocodile, like we see in a crocodile or a frog. It had a flat head, but most interestingly, when they pulled the, when they got the the entire fossil, you know, uh, released from the rock, they found that the front limbs of Tiktaalik had the one bone, two bone architectural structure that we have in our bone, one bone, two bones. Tiktaalik had the beginnings of a wrist also had the little wrist bones down there. Tiktaalik also had a shoulder and a neck. Now, Tiktaalik was not fully adapted to land, but Tiktaalik was, had, an, had an advantage over other fish in that it could push itself up on those primitive forelimbs and look around and look for either prey or something trying to eat it. So Tiktaalik is a beautiful transition shows us the trend, the trajectory uh, that occurred between fully aquatic and land animals. And so it was the theory of evolution that allowed Dr. Shubin to predict where he should go looking for such a transitional. Something else happened um, in whale, in the study of whale evolution. We had... Um, known just from the fossil record uh, for a long time that um, whales evolved from land animals. And whales, uh, through, you know, control genes, mutations, went back to a fully aquatic. They kind of went full circle and went back to the sea. Um, We knew this because there is a unique ear structure in the skull of a whale. Only whales have this unique ear structure. It's what allows them to be able to hear so well underwater. Well, we, as the fossil record uh, became more complete, we began to find these animals that were obviously tetrapods, land animals, 
But in their skulls, they had this unique ear bone structure that we find in modern whales. Well, the puzzling situation was that with genetics, we could do genetic um, mapping of the whales, the modern whales, and do genetic testing of the modern um, group of animals called the arterial dactyls, the even hooved animals like deer, hippopotamus, things like that, sheep. And we found that modern whales are most closely genetically related to hippopotamuses. But arterial dactyls have a very unique ankle bone. It's shaped like a double pulley. And what we had never found in the fossil record was a complete ankle bone of one of these walking whales. We found bits and pieces of their, of their hind limbs and forelimbs, but we had never found a complete uh, ankle bone. And that was until the late 90s. And then we found multiple uh, fossils of ancient whales that walked on four legs and had intact ankle bones. And guess what? They had that double pulley ankle. So again, evolution theory predicted that if we ever found a, an intact ankle bone on one of these fossilized walking whales, then we would find that double pulley structure. Evolution theory made that prediction and it was a testable prediction. So yeah, in order for something to be a, a science theory, it has to be able to um, generate testable hypotheses. And so, I mean, yeah, that I think any intellectually honest participant in the discussion would have to concede that that story is a point in favor of the view. This predictive power mm -hmm. That you you just would not expect otherwise. Like there, there's nothing to speak of that connection in a Genesis-based creationist account. Yeah, you just would that. It has explanatory power. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Or there's an unknown that 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 this theory is uniquely saying, "Oh, I actually know what that's going to be." If you right. were to look for it, it'll be like that. And the creationist would be like, "I don't know what the ankle is going to look like." Yeah, yeah. But but no, but we do. And look, there it is. Yeah. So that. I think I think that's fair. Like anyone in the discussion has to say, "Oh man, that's that's powerful." That yeah, is powerful. That's Evidence. one. That is one of the primary problems with intelligent design as a science theory, because proponents of intelligent design will say that ID is an alternative theory to evolution. They want to put ID on the same level as mm -hmm. evolution theory, but Intelligent design has no power to predict. If mm -hmm. everything we see is a choice made by a designer and that choice was made known for a reason known only to the designer, how can we use that to predict? How can you predict mm -hmm. anything? Um, if, mm -hmm. if you're talking about this complex eye or this complex system, is a design known only in the mind of the designer, how are you going to generate a testable hypothesis from that? What is that going to lead you? When would you be justified in inferring that something's designed? Like, I, I do that in my life yeah. all the time. Like, I, I think when I see trash on the side of the road, I think that it was likely the result of some kind of human interaction. And, you know, there, there's some uh, creative agent at work and explaining this phenomenon or even like the the darling of the id movement that that was brought up uh earlier in the conversation uh irreducible complexity to me like that that is a interesting concept that's an idea worth thinking about as a even as a scientist like oh that like great point dr behe like that we we would want to i would be very curious to learn if there are instances of that in biological life that mm -hmm. look if you and the, i guess the basic idea would be if any one part were taken away then the structure would lose its primary function and and then not be adaptively or reproductively advantageous 
and so yeah, maybe help me understand. Like those seem like worthwhile pursuits uh, of intellectual of intellectual interest, and things like uh, I'm sure you've heard of or even seen the documentary Expelled. No intelligence allowed. I think it came out in the 2000s with Ben Stein, and he's interviewing all the guys. and And there's this. Um, it's not totally conspiracy theory, but it tiptoes in that direction of look. This is why there's not peer reviewed articles. The scientific establishment is just against having design and irreducible complexity language in the journals. Hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I I, I felt persuaded at the time by that film and wondering like, Hey, like why aren't these guys getting a seat at the table? Like let them publish and try to put their work out there. And if it's not widely accepted by the community, then okay. I don't know anything about that rambling that you could help me sort out. Well, first of all, I would just say I completely understand the attraction to intelligent design. That was part of my journey to, you know, reading about that, seeing if there was some credibility there. Um, on the one hand, intelligent design does use a lot of technical scientific language. And on one level, it feels like a science honoring way to recognize that God is the ultimate source of everything. I think that um, we are so conditioned as people of faith, as seeing evolution as atheistic, we somehow feel like we need um, an asterisk on our evolution. Well, you know, I believe in evolution, but for many of us, that asterisk is intelligent design. We just can't quite go full force evolution. Um, but there's multiple problems with ID, intelligent design, both from a, a faith perspective theological perspective, and also from a science perspective. You know, first of all, we've already touched on this. The broken vitamin C gene is not the only broken gene we have in our genomes. Our genomes are littered with broken genes, that we can find these same broken genes in animals that are evolutionarily closely related to us. And so we have these broken, non-functioning genes broken in the same way in other um, related animals. And so you have to ask yourself, why would a designer insert a broken gene into not only our genomes, but multiple other genomes, and not just broken, gen uh, not just broken genes, we have genes in our genome uh, from millennia of viral infections, viruses over the, the millions of years that have invaded our ancestral kin. And our, the, the viral uh, DNA has been incorporated into our own. And so it, that becomes a problem if you're talking about uh, an intentional design. Um, I would also you know, just, I would say to that, why would a designer mimic evolution so closely? If it was truly design and not a natural process of evolution, why did the designer choose to design in such a way that looks for all the world like it uh, evolved from, co from a common ancestry? You know, and then from maybe more of a philosophical point of view, um, we always want to talk about the great and wondrous designs. Let's talk about the eye. Let's talk about a sunset. Let's talk about all the things that are wonderful in on our planet and in life. Uh, but what we don't talk about are the myriad examples of bad design. Uh, for example, the human back. The human back causes more um, orthopedic issues for us probably than almost any other part of our body. Um, and back problems are primarily due to the fact that we inherited our back architecture from a quadruped, from an animal that used that same architecture who walked on four legs. But humans having that same back architecture stood up and walked on two. 
So um, there's, that's a fascinating study uh, that you could see all the different changes that had to occur in order to accommodate our bipedal walking. But at the same time, we brought on ourselves um, you know, a world of back pain. Um, what, it, it, here's one of my favorite biology trivial questions. Do you know what animal kills more humans in the world than any other animal every year? The mosquito. Yes. It's not a we shark. It's, you know, people get sharks or right. rhinoceroses, but it's a mosquito. Yeah. Mosquitoes kill. And one of the greatest health problems on our planet today is malaria. Well, there is a defective version of the hemoglobin gene that if a person inherits one defective version of this hemoglobin gene, and hemoglobin, by the way, is the is the uh, element in our red blood cells that allow us to carry oxygen throughout our body. So if a person inherits one mutated version of this hemoglobin gene, they still have one good version, and so they'll, they'll be able to carry their oxygen just fine. But one copy of that hemoglobin gene confers resistance to malaria. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Wonderful. What a great decision by the designer is to design this uh, built-in uh, malaria resistance into these people's genomes. But that resistance comes at a cost. Because the defective gene confers malaria resistance, the defective gene stays in the gene pool. And for those people unfortunate enough to inherit two copies of that gene, mm. they sickle will have... Sickle cell anemia? Yes, they will have sickle cell disease. They will have a debilitating and quite often fatal disease called sickle cell disease. And so, good design, bad design. Um, and, you know, and we can go throughout life, you know, and talk about, you know, Hmm. Was this a choice of a good designer? Was this the choice of a compassionate, loving designer? You know, when you talk about things in the biological world that are either poor designs or cruel designs, um, you get in a little philosophical problems when you're attributing everything. You know, in the case of most religious people, the designer is God. And mm -hmm. then, as you mentioned, uh, the 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 foundation of intelligent design is this concept of irreducible complexity, where we say something is so complex, it can't have evolved because every part and piece had to have been in place all at once or the entire structure or the entire function uh, process cannot function. And so we have this concept of irreducible complexity. It's so complex, you can't take away a single system. But the problem with that occurs when we do explain <laughs> that this complex design, this complex system, this complex structure can be reduced. Uh, it used to be the bacterial flagellum, uh, the human immune system, the blood clotting cascades were once held up by the ID proponents as irreducibly complex. Oh, they don't do the flagellum anymore? That's the that's the big one I learned. That's yeah. in Behe's book. Yeah, that's in my book. That's in my book. Yeah. Also, um, yes, the flagellum, what we found is in oh, a no. closely related to bacteria that have these flagellum, a closely related species of bacteria is a toxic bacteria. They use this little biological syringe of sorts. You can imagine like a needle, a syringe, to inject their toxin into their host. Well, what we found out now because of our, our um, abilities to analyze things biochemically and microscopically and genetically is that multiple structures in that flagella are found in that non-flagellated bacteria, but the one that has the little 
a mm. hypodermic needle, so to speak. It's parts yeah. and pieces of it. But what's missing from the, the toxic bacteria is the part that makes it spin. So all you had to add over here to the flagellated bacteria is something to make it spin. The and other it did something different. That's where the mistake was made. That like, look, if you take away a piece, then it won't be able to spin. Yeah, right. Yes, but if you take it away, look, this other guy over here made yes. it into like this it. little yes. sticker weapon. Stabba. Absolutely. Yeah. And we find that all throughout biology is that mm. parts and pieces are reused, they're repurposed, they're reorganized. Uh, there is a, a, a protein that is found in the complex human eye, in the lens. It's called crystalline. And it's found in the lens of the human eye, which has been held up, again, as irreducibly complex. Well, what we found was that crystalline, as a protein, is also produced by a kind of animal called a sea squirt. A sea squirt is one of those really interesting uh, primitive animals that's a chordate, but it's not a vertebrate. So it's very Sorry, what's closely a cord- related what's a, to us. It's a chordate. What's a chordate? You said that earlier and I pretended I knew what it meant, but I don't. What's a chordate? Well, we all are chordates. All of us, you and oh. I, we're all chordates. In that Great. Embry- <laughs> yes, embryologically, we have a nerve cord that runs down our back as embryos. Now, okay. vertebrates, that nerve cord um, becomes... Uh, our spinal cord and our spine and bone forms around it in vertebrates. But there are uh, simple animals that still exist that are very much like those original chordates that arose back in the Cambrian. They're called uh, uh, sea squirts or tunicates is the more biological name, and lancets that are little worm-like creatures. And they are living chordates, but they are not vertebrates. So what we found is in these tunicates, these sea squirts, they don't even have a head. They look, if you saw them in the wild, they look like sponges, like those really oh. simple animal sponges. They don't have a head. They're filter feeders, uh, but they have embryologically this nerve cord. Well, we found out, lo and behold, these chordates, uh, these tunicates produce crystalline. So what in the world is crystalline, a protein that is necessary for the human complex eye, what is it doing being expressed by this primitive chordate that doesn't even have a head, much less an eye? Well, turns out the chordates, this this tunicate is using it in a, almost like a gyroscope organ in its body to tell up from down. It's a gravity sensing um, function in the chordate. Uh, There's also a, a protein called cadherin that literally helps to form multicellular bodies. It's, it's a sticky thing. It's a protein that sticks, and, and animal cells can use it to stick together. And we find it only, so we thought, in multicellular animals. Well, there was a, a researcher who was studying one-celled organisms, and called choanoflagellates, and she found these, these choanoflagellates produced cadherin. So her question was, what is a one-celled organism doing Mm. producing this protein that's used to form multicellular organisms? It's literally used to stick cells together. Well, what she found out was the choanoflagellates were not using it to stick to other choanoflagellates. They were using it to stick to food that floated by. And so that's what we find time and time again, that we're not finding irreducible complexity. Just like you said, a a, a chemical, a a, a gene, um, a structure can be used in another way. So if it's used in another way than the complex example that we had, like the blood clotting or the immune system, it doesn't mean it's irreducibly complex. It just means that the parts and pieces were already there in related animals and they were repurposed for whatever reason. We don't know, obviously, all the mutations that went into um, 
vertebrates beginning to express crystalline in the lens of their eye. We don't have that answer, but what we do know is that the genes for producing crystalline were in existence long before vertebrates were in hmm. existence, that the yeah. gene was already there. We know that the genes that produce flowers are older than flowering plants. Um, there's all throughout biology, we have examples of this. So, you know, there's lots of problems with intelligent design, you know, either from a philosophical point of view, why would a designer mimic evolution? Uh, we've already touched on this a bit, but intelligent design does not have the ability to predict. And you mentioned the, Kitzmer, uh, the Dover Kitzmiller trial in 2005. Interestingly, that was a three-week trial. It was tried before a very conservative judge in a conservative court, federal court, by a judge who was appointed by George W. Bush, who was on record as saying that he uh, would support intelligent design being taught in public schools. So this was the judge that decided the case. And in three weeks, uh, the intelligent design proponents, they brought in all the big guns, they brought in all of their research, and after three weeks, um, with the ability to bring anybody up to testify, I, intelligent design was ruled by this judge to be without a doubt, without a doubt. To, to read his ruling is pretty eye-opening. Without a doubt, intelligent design is not science, and it has a religious basis. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, you, know, you mentioned that, you know, why do these peer-reviewed scientific publications not ever have any intelligent design articles? Are they being, as the, the, the movie said, are they being, um, you know, barred for whatever you know, nefarious reasons uh, from publishing in these journals? You know, I say the same thing about intelligent design as I would say about young earth creationism. You just, if there was evidence for special creation, there was evidence for a young earth, if there was evidence for design, you would think there would be at least one non-religious person promoting that idea. You would think there'd be at least one, and there's just not. Anyone that promotes any of those ideas comes from a religious perspective, so you'd think if there truly was no evidence for common ancestry, there's just no evidence for common ancestry, you would think there would be at least one non-religious person to find that evidence, to see that evidence, but there's just not. And, you know, scientists love to prove each other wrong. The, the woman who won the Nobel Prize in 2019 for chemistry had to announce in 2020 that she was re, uh, retracting a paper. It wasn't her Nobel paper, but Nobel Prize winner or not, people found problems in her latest paper, and she had to retract it. Scientists are not hesitant to prove each other wrong. And that is, you know, what how I would respond to why we don't see intelligent design in the peer-reviewed scientific journals uh, because it doesn't function the way science functions. It doesn't predict new discoveries, like evolutionary theory can predict new discoveries. Intelligent design, by its very nature, can't predict new discoveries. You're saying you're almost like it's almost like a retrospective that we're looking at these things. They're so complex, they couldn't have evolved, they had to be designed. Okay, so what does that predict? What does that help us find? What new discoveries can we find because of intelligent design theory? So maybe one more big topic before we start to wrap up, and that's um, there's there's just so much we could dive into in specifics, but just for the sake of time, what about someone who would say like, all right, uh, Janet, I, I concede everything having to do with animals and fish and lizards and all that they all evolved and everything you're saying and tiktaalik and whatever half uh land whale whatever you're talking about <laughs> fine all of that happened but look human beings humans are special i was created in the image of god 
I bear some kind of special status above all these critters. And so at the very least, like God had his handiwork, his fingerprint is on whatever it is that I am. It's, if it's, a, it's a soul or if it's, even if it's merely just my, uh, homo sapien makeup, my genetic code, something about that can't be the result of this cold, brutal, unguided process. At, at least here, like, can't, don't we, don't we as people of faith have to plant the flag here and say, look, you mean if we bear the image of God in some way, if that's to be taken seriously, do you mean I that, guess that, so. that humanity I, stands unique from the rest of the animal kingdom in that we are God's image bearers, according to... I guess so. And I, I'm not trying to bring up like a whole... Like we don't have to exegete passages sure. or a whole theological thing, but more on the... It's a maybe like the last stand before embracing all this evolution and stuff. Like, now, wait a minute. Aren't human beings special? Mm. And as a religious person, I want to hold on to that. And I want to know how that relates to what is going on in the science. Yeah, that's it. good. And that's a good question because when uh, Pew and Gallup and some of these other uh, research organizations, uh, when they survey people, they you can find where there is a distinction made between people's acceptance of evolution if you include humans and if you don't include humans. So there definitely that is a, definitely a sticking point for a lot of people. Uh, but I would say. There is nothing demeaning about evolution. What is demeaning about a natural process? Uh, what is demeaning about human beings being brought into existence through a natural process? You know, if people want a child, if a couple wants a child, and they pray to God and ask God to send them a child, and a pregnancy occurs. If they're people of faith, they thank God for the gift of this child and for the miracle of childbirth, full well knowing that it to get to this child, we have nine months of a very natural embryologic process and no one considers that embryological process to be demeaning. I'll spare you the, the gory details of how all of us began at one point in our existence. Right. I was going to say there's some natural things occurring before the embryonic <laughs> development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And even before that, if you're, if you're talking about gamete production, the production of mm. egg and sperm in the process called meiosis, it is a random party gone wild. If you don't like randomness in your mm -hmm. human development, you know, you're not going to get the gametes because there is all sorts of randomness that randomness that goes into creating eggs and sperm. And the fertilization process itself, again, randomness and just the development from this one cell, um, one single cell that's undifferentiated, all this, as it divides, all the cells are identical. They don't differentiate for quite some time. Um, I, I will say this, the first opening in your body is not your mouth. It's your other opening. You know, a lot of people don't like to hear things like that. And it's part of the natural embryological process. Yet no one finds that demeaning. And so I think we are missing a really, really important conversation. And that is, what does it mean to be God's image bearers? Does that mean that it's a resemblance of some sort? Or is it a vocation or a task of reflecting God into the world? Um, and then can we talk about, does it really matter how we evolved? how we got here, if we are truly fulfilling our vocation of reflecting God into the world. Uh, science doesn't tell us a single thing about our purpose as humans, and that's why I would reject scientism or naturalism, because there are ways of knowing things that are outside of science. And my faith tells me about my purpose as a human. 
And my faith tells me that God tasked me and other humans with being the image bearers of God into the world. So our function is to reflect God regardless of our material origins. So, you know, I don't mean this to sound crass or anything, but does it really matter if we evolve to have eight fingers instead of five, or if we evolve to walk on four legs instead of two, if we are reflecting God into the world? Does it really matter that we evolved to be the way we look identically now? You know, so I think we're missing a important conversation about what it actually means to be God's image bearers and is a natural process by default, a demeaning process. And I think that's what we've decided is that evolution is demeaning. Are you saying that we, you know, came from monkeys, that thing which we didn't come from monkeys, but are you saying that we share common ancestry with all life? Yes, yes, we do. And if God is the source of all of that, I want to know how is that demeaning? How is that demeaning us in any way if we are connected to all of the life that God created? But, you know, kind of to circle back to something that's been a theme throughout our discussion is that, um, you know, these decisions to reject evolution do not come from science. They don't come from an examination of the science. It's not the science that is demanding it. It's theology that is demanding it. Um, there, uh, Todd Wood is a, is a young earth creationist. He has a, a website, Core Academy, and he caused a lot of consternation in the young creationist world not too long ago when he posted a blog that said evolution is not a theory in crisis. And he went on, but the, the, the conclusion of his blog was that no one is hiding evidence for creation. Um, there is evidence for evolution. And then he makes this statement, I reject evolution as a faith choice. So he was honest enough to say so, that his rejection of evolution was a faith choice and not a science choice. And actually, the same thing happened to Galileo. Galileo did not get brought up before the Inquisition because he hurt their science feelings, you know, by saying that the, the earth was not the center of the solar system. Oh, sure. Yeah. There were other people at the same time of Galileo who were under the, the rule of the church who likewise said that it was the sun was the center, but they weren't in trouble with the church. What got Galileo in trouble was trying to um, make the religion and the science um, coordinate together. And when he began to talk about how this was not uh, inconsistent with scripture, that's when he caught the church's attention. And he didn't just say in his science lane, he forayed into theology. And so then it became a big deal because if the earth is no longer the center of the solar system, then the earth, then, then humans who live on that earth are no longer the apple of God's eye. And if we are no longer the apple of God's eye, the center of God's attention, then all is lost. Christianity just falls to the ground. Well, we see the same thing in creationist arguments, that if we don't have a literal genesis, a literal creation, then the Bible is no longer inerrant. We don't have an Adam. If we don't have an Adam, we don't have a fall. We don't have sin. And all of a sudden, there's no need for Jesus. And so if you back it up far enough, it's not the science that underlies the, the passion behind creationism, intelligent design. It's the theology, uh, this misunderstanding that the theology is going to crumble if we take away this part. You know, um, the last I read scripture, scripture says that there is no other name. Um, and that name is Jesus. That name's not Adam. You know, and I just wonder if, you know, is the gospel so fragile that it's going to collapse under a non-literal Adam, a non-literal mm -hmm. Genesis? That's fascinating. The, the, that image, the idea of image of God as function as opposed to sort of 
yeah. ontological status. That's I'm not true on that. Yeah, that's new to me. That's really interesting. I got to think about that. I had one follow-up question that might be strange and off topic, but my brother asked me today and we were thinking about it. Evolution is not a process that has stopped, right? I mean, what's what's next? And uh, should we expect biological evolution? Would, will humans look different in a thousand years? And my my mind immediately went to, well, when I think about the, the process of evolution and natural selection, it's like organism shaping environment, environment shaping organism, and seems to me like the next frontier is technology and integrating that with wow. us more somehow. But what do, what do you think about going forward? Evolution and humans, will we have wings one day? Who knows? <laughs> Where are we headed? Interestingly, um, to be biologically successful doesn't mean complexity. You know, bacteria are one of the most biologically successful organisms on our planet, uh, but they are not complex. Humans, on the other hand, are quite complex. And because of our complexity, we have become successful. But also, because of our complexity, we have learned to circumvent many of the, the, of the outcomes of evolution. You know, think about disease processes, ways that we, you know, antibiotics, vaccines, all the ways that we evade natural selection. You know, all of the people that 500 years ago would not have survived into um, early childhood and definitely would not have survived into adulthood. Uh, because of our complexity, because of our big brains, we have circumvented um, a lot of the natural selection processes in human evolution. So, you know, it's hard to predict at that point, but you're absolutely right. Evolution didn't stop. And that's right. a misconception too, is to think that, that we are the apex of everything. Evolution as a process does not have a goal. You know, we're humans, we've got the big brains, we rule the world. So we think that we were the goal of evolution, that that's what we were working for all this time. You know, biologically, you cannot make that point. If you want to talk philosophically or religiously, that's another conversation. But biologically, evolution doesn't have a goal. And we could still go. We could still go extinct. Easily, right. Easily. Yeah. You know, nuke the world. Well, we and might. cockroaches <laughs> remain, and they're the most successful. I mean, honestly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because on the other hand, our complexity not only gave us antibiotics and vaccines, but it also gave us, you know climate change and pollution mm -hmm. and all sorts of other stuff that we're doing to our environment that would harm us. Yeah. Well, as a way of wrapping up, I'd like to just uh, have give you a chance to address the audience. Of, like, what are some practical next steps for people to take? Of course, here, can you reach it? There? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's one practical step. Buy this book. <laughs> Yep. And read it. That'll be good for yeah. you. Now, this one is uh, has some veteran coffee stains on it. I accidentally spilled some at Panera. <laughs> that makes it better. <laughs> right. That's battle torn. That's right. Um, it's called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. I don't know if we've said the name. Yeah, we but did. We did? Beginning. Okay. Yeah. Just in case we'll you forgot. We'll have it in the show notes, too. Yep. But um, there are, I mean, this this book isn't what changed your mind initially. There are other people that wrote books that helped <laughs> right. you change your mind. What are some of those that you would point people to or... Uh, resources that could help folks uh, dig into this a little bit more if they're so inclined? Well, this is actually an older book. It was pretty much the game changer for me. It was it first came out in 1999, but it was Kenneth Miller's Finding Darwin's God. And he breaks down all of the different iterations of creationism and uh, talks about the, the intellectual cost um, of of, of trying to contort yourself into maintaining some of these positions while still maintaining your faith. So there's definitely that. Um, if you're interested in reading more about intelligent design, uh, Miller also has a book about the Kitz-Miller trial called Only a Theory. And then, of course, Francis Collins, the, uh, our wonderful head of the National Institutes of Health, wrote um, The Language of God. And uh, again, um, a wonderful book. Probably both of all three of those books are probably more intense as far as uh, the science goes. 
Um, those are wonderful books uh, to to read after mine. I would say yeah. that a lot of times, you know, I would say to someone who's just beginning to wonder if there's something to this whole evolution thing. You know, it's not going to be an overnight process, and most likely you will spend time in transition. You know, you may go through a time where you aren't sure what you believed, but you haven't quite firmed up um, where you fall in the discussion about origins yet. So, you know, find a way to give yourself a vocabulary because without the vocabulary, it's hard to know where to start. It's hard to know where to start researching. And of course, there's the wonderful website called Biologos, which was initially begun by uh, Francis Collins. Uh, Deb Harsma is now the president of Biologos, and it just has all sorts of uh, wonderful resources, uh, reading list, homeschooling advice, um, lots of different resources there. Lots of resources that weren't always there when I first began to investigate um, on my own. But, um, you know, from what I found personally, and, and the people that I know that have come along this same path that I have from, you know, being a, a creationist to someone who feels that they can, as a person of faith, accept the evidence for evolution. Um, at some point, it just becomes intellectually impossible to, um, to maintain those contortions. And that's actually where I got the title to my book. You know, if you've got to put baby dinosaurs on the ark in order to make dinosaurs fit into the fossil record, you know, you're going through a lot of mental gymnastics in mm -hmm. order exhausting. to, mm -hmm. it's exhausting. And it becomes, uh, it starts to feel intellectually dishonest, especially when we are grateful for all of the advances in modern biology that um, treat our mm -hmm. cancers or treat the cancers of our loved ones or, or new therapeutics for chronic diseases. We thank God for those things, and we're so happy to have them. But the same processes that brought you those new treatments are the exact same processes that say we share common ancestry, and all life on earth evolved from a common ancestor. And so it becomes intellectually untenable to say that the science is true in this aspect when it helps me, but it's yeah. untrue when it talks about the origin of life. You know, it just becomes, you know, the tightrope tight to walk that you just can't get that baby dinosaur on the ark anymore. And you're just, you're not willing to give up your faith but you've got to start looking at what the science says. And then, you know, it's not an overnight process because after you come to accept the science for biology, science for, of evolution, you've got to then decide what you do with Genesis. And like you said, how you, you began by reading John Walton. Great place to start. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really yeah, appreciate you coming This has been on. great, Janet. Thank oh, you so I loved much. It. So much fun. Thanks good, for inviting good, good. me. Of course. Yeah. Where can people uh, follow you or follow your work? Do you have a website or a Twitter or something? I do. I have a blog that's just Janet K. Ray, just my name, J-A-N-E-T-K-R-A-Y, JanetKRay.com. It's a blog, but I also uh, pull my blog over to my author page on Facebook. I, I put it both places. So okay. I, write, uh, I write about evolution, origins, but I also write a lot about contemporary issues. For example... <laughs> we're experiencing the fallout of decades of telling uh, Christians they can't trust scientists. And oh, yeah, right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. what's happening now in our pandemic is we have too many Christians saying they can't trust the scientists. And so it's all related, and that's all fascinating to me. And I love to write about that all that perfect storm of when uh, science and faith and current events, modern medicine, all just kind of come together in one neat package. Brilliant. That was JanetKRay.com.org? Uh, and com. then just Janet K. Ray on Facebook, author, my author page. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming, Janet. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, if you're listening to this, you made it. 
two hour talk. We covered a lot of ground and there was a lot left on the cutting room floor uh, from her book that we could have talked about. Again, yeah, we really encourage you to check out her book, uh, the blog that she mentioned, uh, JanetKRay.com has all of those resources. And yeah, yeah, if you want to support what we're doing, probably the best way is to actually subscribe or follow our blog. We write about that each week and that would effectively be joining our email list so you can find out updates of new episodes and topics coming up. And we'd love to hear from you right into the show at mailbag at opentotruth.com. Yeah, if you've got questions, you've got comments, if something came up in this episode, you, by all means, write in. And if you have a guest that you think would be dynamite for our show, someone we should reach out to and see if we can get them, we'll try. Even yeah, if they're a big happens. name, Look. we'll try. Yeah. So by all means, let us know. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, stay curious. 